Welcome to Life Hurts, God Heals. I'm your host, Kurt Flegel, and today we have an amazing show. We're going to be talking about the obstacles we all face that hinder us from experiencing God's love. But before we get into any of that, I want to introduce you to our guest, who happens to be a really good friend of mine. This is Kim Ward. Kim, it, it's really interesting to me that we've been friends for a few years now, but the length of time we've been friends to the degree of the closeness we are as friends is quite different. We've we've grown to know each other in a short amount of time, come to trust each other and be very open about many different things in our in our lives, our past, things we've dealt with, things we're dealing with now within just a couple of years. So the amount of time we've been friends is not a direct indicator of how deep our friendship is. So the cool thing for me in this is that this is much more comfortable, to be honest, totally forthright. The last few times I've had the opportunity to interview some people, they've been great, but I don't know them like I know you. So this is a much more relaxed environment for me personally. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. <laughs> I don't know if that's true for you, but well, it's true for me. Well, you know, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with you, I'd say, at this point, or I wouldn't have agreed to come on the show in the first place. Because you're a raging extrovert. I yeah, that would be the exact opposite of true. I am, I am most definitely more of an introvert on that end. So yeah, talk, speaking in public is not my uh, go-to top line enjoyment. You say that, and yet you served in ministry at a church for a number of years. True. And you served in that in a capacity where you were up front leading a youth group and speaking. Yeah. That was that was definitely God at work in my life because it was the funniest thing. I was like I loved the kids and I loved spending time with them, but that was probably one of the biggest hurdles I had to overcome. And it was only because I loved God and knew how much he loved them that I was able to eventually put aside my fear and speak with them on a regular basis. Mm because I knew how much they loved him, and I knew it was worth the cost of me fighting through my fear to be able to tell them that. Where was the fear in that? I Well, you, you know my story, but a lot of other people don't. I just grew up in a household where it wasn't very safe to share my thoughts, to share what I was thinking or going through, and it was it was honestly kind of dangerous to disagree. So I grew up not expressing pretty much anything out, outside of a few safe topics like horses or books or music, you know, the things that were normal, I didn't know what to say half the time, and and not being used to sharing my heart or being vulnerable, those weren't safe things to do, but the, that's what those kids needed in order to know how much God loved them, and so, yeah, like, <laughs> they always say how harsh teenagers are on each other, but if you show them they that you love them, they're pretty darn forgiving of <laughs> your faults when it comes to, to speaking or singing or anything else. Mm. Well, you said that's what they needed, but in what way did you find God meeting your needs in that season of ministering to those kids? I think a lot of it was knowing, realizing I had a voice in the first place, realizing that because God was speaking to me, I had something that was worth sharing with them, mm. that even though I was broken and I was struggling, that they didn't care about that. They cared whether I cared about them. 
So, you know, it was God, a lot of God showing me, hey, I can use you no matter where you're at, no matter how broken you are. You know, there's always those moments of God just going, I'm not afraid of your brokenness. I'm not afraid of your weakness. Like, that's actually where I move best. Mm. You know, because <laughs> kids are great. Like, I, I absolutely adore teenagers and young adults. And it was fun for me to come out of my shell, too, and, and to find new ways of exploring and enjoying the world and to see the world through their eyes and get to enjoy with them the things that God put on their heart to enjoy. Mm. And it took me out of myself and stopped stopped me from focusing on what I wasn't good at and put my focus on what they needed and what they enjoyed and loved. So what I hear you saying is that your focus before you stepped into that ministry environment was on the things that you weren't so good at rather than what you were good at? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I absolutely love my parents. That's never been the issue. But unfortunately, in their brokenness, they were extremely critical of me and everything I did and everything I said. So my messages were always, you're not enough. You can't do it. You're going to fail. And that becomes a story you tell yourself in your head. And it, even though it's not true, it becomes the reality you live out of. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. So just getting your focus off of what you can't do. Because, yeah, I couldn't do everything. I wasn't as good a speaker as the previous youth pastor, who's one of my really good friends. Mm. But when you take the focus off of that and you just focus on being who you are with God and doing what he's called you to do, even though it's scary, it it changes your focus and it changes how you feel about yourself. And, and it's a great learning experience. I mean, youth ministry is definitely a good place to not just uh, serve, but to learn about who God's made you to be. Because... All those kids care about is if you actually care about them. Mm. They're way less judgmental <laughs> of the adults in their life, <laughs> even if they are still really harsh on each other. Which is surprising, I would say, that I think there's plenty of adults who feel insecure around young adults or teenagers because because of that generation gap. Yeah. And the insecurity is probably because they they feel like they're being judged for being irrelevant or obsolete to the younger generation. Part of what I loved was it was an older congregation that I was serving in, and most of those kids, like all but one or two, they weren't part of the church. They were just from the community. And the older congregation stepped up and fed them and, you know, offered them snacks and would bring food in and would, like, encourage them to listen, and, like, you'd see the kids blossoming under it. Mm. I mean, they still had their bits of attitude because they're still teenagers, <laughs> and they have to, they, they, there's a certain expectation that they act a certain way, I think, but when you get down to their heart underneath it, you know, they, they crave that, especially, like, it was a very small town, so most, and a very expensive town, so a lot of those students, both of their parents worked. So they didn't get a lot of that attention at home. They didn't get a lot of that stability or love or the just that a time. Time is such a huge thing for those kids because their parents are so busy working to pay for everything that they often didn't have time for them. Mm. And, uh, you know, kids come in that were extremely angry and <laughs> disruptive. Mm. And even if they didn't agree with everything that I was trying to teach them, they they would have done practically anything for me and vice versa. Hmm. What I hear you saying is the older generation removed some of those obstacles, those generation gaps, by giving themselves away to these kids, serving them, 
feeding them, taking care of needs maybe that they weren't feeling they were getting from their parents. And you removed obstacles from their relationship with God by creating an environment where they could be known. But you said something, is that correct, first of all, I guess? Yeah, that that, that at least (laughs) in the end was my goal. I didn't care as much about how many Bible characters they knew or what kind of grades they got, but I just wanted it to be a safe place for them to know, to be known and to know that God loved them. And I feel like, (laughs) you know, that was definitely something that has been expressed to me by some of the students later on, that that was what they felt. Hmm. Success. (laughs) But to get to to the point where you were removing obstacles for them, what I heard you say was there was obstacles you had in yourself when it came to knowing who you were. You said that earlier, that God was using this in your own life to remove those obstacles. So what were those obstacles, and where did they come from? Hmm. Easy, softball questions here. Right, yeah, you you wouldn't want to ask any uh, just gentle, easy questions, would you, Kurt? (laughs) Heaven forbid. No. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, with my adoption. I was adopted as an infant, and I don't ever remember not knowing I was adopted. I think it's actually one of the things I would say my parents did really well, because there's nothing worse than finding out later and realizing your parents lied to you all those years. But at the same time, that comes with certain wounds. In in my case, um, I have two older half-siblings by birth, and my mother could not afford to keep me or at least that's what she was told by the people in her life, that she wouldn't have the support that she needed to keep me. So the the first thing I kind of really remember was, well, you're loved, but if you're a burden, you'll get left. Mm. And so, and unfortunately, um, just growing up with with the family I did, I grew up in a Christian home, or to a certain extent, it would almost feel more accurate to say, I grew up in a home where we went to church. Because what I heard on Sundays and what I heard my parents say on Sundays was not what I experienced at home. There was, there's just a lot of brokenness, a lot of, as I said before, criticalness. Just no matter what we did, it was not good enough. And we were constantly told, you need to pull your own weight. You're responsible for your mom's happiness. You're responsible for... Essentially, it was our job to to make the family happy. And, and that's a really hard thing to put on a kid. Mm to be told that you're a burden and that you have to pull your own weight and that you're responsible to make sure everyone else is happy. And my mom was never happy no. <laughs> or very rarely happy. She had good moments. She had some amazing moments where some of the things that I love most in my life are things that she taught and shared with me. But because of her brokenness, I also got to the point where I just automatically assumed people wouldn't like me. That who I was was a burden. So I was that kid that hid in the corner and tried to not be noticed. And eventually, I I did what I called flying under the radar. I did whatever it took to be invisible because it was safer to be invisible in our family than it was to be noticed. Mm-hmm. You could ask my younger sister who took the opposite approach and fought. <laughs> I tried it for about six months and decided that it wasn't worth fighting because mm-hmm. it didn't lead anywhere good. So I had a lot of I had a lot of just feeling like 
I was never going to amount to anything. Like, I didn't have any value in the world. And unfortunately, my father, who I absolutely adore, also told me that because I wanted to work with horses, he said, you're going to fail. So I was given, you're a failure, you're not enough, you're a burden, and if you're a burden, you'll be left alone. So uh, to say I, (laughs) I wound up in a very dark place. There was just so much trauma involved between the adoption and, you know, you're cut off from your roots. You grow up and you don't look like anyone else in your family. You grow up and you're always wondering why. Why wasn't that enough to be kept? And you you go through all this, and if you try to express any of it, especially in the church community, because I tried, I would get, just be grateful you weren't aborted. You should just be thankful, like, Oh, if you hadn't been put in that family, you would never know God. And (laughs) I'm a firm believer that no matter where you are, God always intended to reach you. Mm. And he's always seeking after you. So it it was just, there wasn't any way of processing all that pain because it wasn't allowed. And I wound up depressed and um, just in in a really bad place. And unfortunately, my my younger sister, who's uh, adopted from a completely different family, wound up being in a place where she she tried to commit suicide multiple times in the course of a couple years. And that just led me to a place where I didn't trust people at that point because I had no reason to. But that led me to the point where I went, okay, God, if you're real, and I, I firmly believe you are, and I prayed the prayer when I was five, I need you to show up because I got no one else I can turn to. There wasn't anyone else. I didn't. I didn't know anyone that was safe to talk to those, mm. talk with about any of that stuff. This is an interesting point where you reach out to God. That's saying quite a bit because of where you come from. Because from my experience, when we go through wounds, our wounds speak messages to us, messages of shame. Mm. And I, I've already heard you say what those messages were for you. The wound spoke that you're a burden, that you're not enough. There was more. Give me um, what 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 other messages did you did you hear? Failure. Oh right. Yeah. That you're not going to do anything well. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. And <laughs> it was so bad that I I honestly from the time I was probably about thirteen fourteen I just prayed that God would take me home mm. because I was so afraid of growing up and having to be responsible. <laughs> and knowing, knowing quotation marks, that I'm going to fail just absolutely terrified me. So I I didn't believe I had a future yeah. growing up in that. But I read the Bible, <laughs> and even though I didn't see it in the church and I didn't see it in my family, I there was part of me that knew God was real even then, and that was like that small glimmer of hope in the middle of all that, that anchor that I could cling to that just even though I wanted to give up so badly, I couldn't. Would you say the overriding sense was a sense of worthlessness? Yeah, definitely. That the uh, pain and the hurt that you had experienced from a young age had created a message of shame in you that was that you were worthless. Yeah. This is the, the message that pain speaks to us. Whether we inflict pain on others or we have pain inflicted on us, that it creates shame. And the idea of shame that's different from guilt, just to, to clarify, <laughs> guilt says you've done something wrong. Shame says I am something wrong. And when we hurt other people and leave that not dealt with, 
where we don't process the things we've done to others, and we can receive that message, I am something wrong, because, and that's why I do these things. When other people hurt us, and especially, like, consistently, if we feel betrayed or hurt over and over and over again, if not dealt with, if forgiveness isn't something that we process through and let that go, it says the same thing, that these people have hurt me and treated me as worthless because I am worthless. And so you said that God was using the youth ministry to remove those obstacles, those things you believed about yourself. And I want to talk about that, like how he used the youth ministry to get there. But even to the point where you said you were reading the Bible and knew that God was there, if you can, like, how did you get to even to that point before youth ministry? How did, how did you get to a point where you said you always knew God was real? Like, okay, there's this heavenly father who gives us er- earthly parents to reflect who he is in some ways, yet your earthly parents, your biological and adopted parents, revealed less of who God is than you would have liked, to say it mildly. So how did you hold on to the idea of a Heavenly Father who is different from them through those years? Because that wasn't your experience. How did you get to the point where you could hold to that, the reality of the Heavenly Father being so different from your earthly parents and believe that? Before youth ministry. Before youth ministry. Well, to be honest, I told you that I wound up in a really dark place. And it's funny, God, God's timing is so good. So one of my best friends who's in youth ministry, that's actually how I met him. It was that year. I just graduated high school. No idea what I wanted to do. Absolutely terrified. Extremely depressed 18-year-old pretending like everything is all right. And really good at it. And he brought my friend Robert into the picture, and he became the youth pastor. I I told you how messed up everything was with my sister. Well, Robert started stepping up, and I watched him with my sister first because, you know, she was kind of the guinea pig. She would do all the crazy stuff, and I would decide if it was worth doing. (laughs) And I generally decided no because she made some really bad choices. But Robert was one of the best choices she ever made. Mm. And because she got to know him, I got to know him. I was also her ride, so (laughs) I wasn't really given an option in that. But in a time where I didn't feel safe, um, Robert offered me a safe place to stay. He'd He'd leave the youth room door open for me so I could go hide out in the youth room and crash. When? A lot of the times during the day, sometimes when I was honestly supposed to be at what I told my parents I was at work. (laughs) Because they didn't understand why I didn't want to be home. (laughs) Mm. Uh, that's actually when I first started volunteering youth ministry. I wasn't in charge. I certainly wasn't. I was kind of the bouncer. I was the one that took the phones and made sure the kids were quiet during the message. <laughs> the enforcement. I, yeah, I, well, that's actually my nickname. I was the enforcer. Um, Which is funny because knowing you, you know, we're going to talk a little bit right now about the Enneagram. For those <laughs> who don't know it, it's, it's, an, it's an ancient numbering system that goes back to fourth, fifth century, at least in church world, and goes back farther than that in Greek philosophy. But the Enneagram has developed into a personality numbering system with nine personalities 
nine numbers yeah. that can be personality. And knowing you that you're an Enneagram number nine, which hates conflict, yeah. To think of you as the enforcer is, that's just really funny to me. But keep in mind, <laughs> I have a one wing Okay. that is very high justice oriented yes. and has an extreme dislike of rule breaking. <laughs> so for those who don't know, um, your number is positioned on the scale between two other numbers. And in this case, the nine is the last number and one is the first number. So your position between, your number nine is positioned between an eight and a one. And the one, which is my oldest daughter, hmm. is a one, is the perfectionist. Imperfection is evil in, in a one's eyes. Oof. And they pursue, uh, like right and wrong is very black and white. And anything that is not in the rules, anything that isn't in the way it should be, is evil. And so even within themselves, anything that's out of alignment with perfection that isn't complete is evil. And so they're driven to, to bring perfection into the world. So you're a nine who hates conflict with a one wing. That's fun. Just knowing how I am, I'm not always... I'm definitely more on the nine side for sure. And the one wing just means that, man, you break those rules and it drives me nuts. Yeah. But yet you were comfortable enough to step into a leadership role as a volunteer. That says a lot about who Robert is for you, especially at that time. Yeah. To be fair, I will say this because it's something I've come to realize. There were very clear boundaries and expectations. I knew what was expected of me and I knew what was expected of the kids. So it's much easier to enforce rules when I know that, well, first off, I've got backup and he's six foot something and we'll definitely enforce any of that. Because honestly, I, in some cases, I was only like two years older than the students I was volunteering with. So to a certain extent, Robert Tree, other than the enforcer role, which was just because I was sitting in the audience, to a certain extent was because I was sitting in the audience, it was a good excuse for me to remain in ministry because there, there was not college age ministry in the church that I went to. So Robert took me under his wing and was definitely ministering to me and treating me as a friend and making it a safe place. So mm. it, it was it was safe to, to go be the enforcer and take their phone <laughs> away or something else because, you know, I'm, yeah, I wasn't much older than them, but I had backup. So what I'm hearing is there were a lot of people and experiences that had kept you from experiencing the love that God has for you. There were obstacles in that way. But there were also glimpses of who God was through people and experiences as well. You began to see glimpses of who God is as your heavenly Father who is also holy. Hmm. I love that word. I used to hate it because it seems so sterile and alien and foreign to me. But that's the point, not being sterile. But the idea of it being foreign is that God is foreign in this sense. And why it's so hard for us to understand and relate to him is because he is perfect love, and we have never had that revealed to us, right? Yeah. Every Everyone's love in an earthly sense, even as sacrificial as it can be, is inconsistent. And God's love is, is never inconsistent. That's what makes him holy. He is perfect in his patience towards us, his joy for us, that he actually enjoys us fully, like... Yeah. His love is not obligatory. It's not an obligated love like I have to love you, so I will. 
His love is radically passionate and joyous for us. And that is what the holiness of God looks like. Perfect, unending, completely, radically passionate love, patience, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness. Like you had head knowledge from reading scripture about God's (laughs) attributes, his holiness and what it looked like. But you didn't have experiences, a lot of experiences. And that's what the obstacles, the hurt was keeping you from experiencing that. Those critical messages kept you in the background. You said that. You were always in the shadows. Well, that even serving as a volunteer, as as the enforcer, is coming out of the shadows. How did God use Robert? Like, what kind of, I guess, what kind of messages did Robert begin to speak into you that led you to take some steps out of, like, the safety of the shadows? He was always available, which was, um, well, okay, to be fair, he slept in until afternoon. But, <laughs> but um, Like this youth, he youth didn't, pastor? <laughs> yeah, the stereotypical youth pastor who's up till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. He definitely fulfilled his night owl duties. Um, what you have to understand is, even in the middle of that, I wasn't telling Robert anything. He had no idea what was going on within me. And I would frequently skip out of the middle of youth group. And, and there was a um, a cliff and, like, a little seating area, and I would go out and stare at the ocean and just go, God, what the heck are you doing? Like, I don't get this. I don't understand this. Like, I need you, and I don't see you. And everyone's asked, telling me to pray and ask you for things, and you'll talk to me, but I don't know how to hear you. And that went on for a solid year and a half. Robert got married to his beautiful wife, Emily, and she also loved me and accepted me and didn't shoo me away when I was there five days of the week. Mm. But it was the craziest thing. There was another family in that church that kept going, you need to go to YWAM, which for those of you who don't know is Youth with a Mission, which is uh, an organization that specializes in discipleship schools and taking 18 to 20-something-year-olds and taking them for six months. And all you do is focus on your relationship with God and who he says you are and what you're meant to do and an impact on the world. And I kept saying no. Because that was, talk about scary. Like, first off, I didn't want to leave my horse <laughs> um, for that long. Understandable. For, for that long. And also, it, that was just terrifying, that entire process. But God was definitely using Robert and working on my heart. And Robert's like, hey, we're going to do a missions trip. I want you to go. And he wouldn't stop talking about it. <laughs> he would not stop. And I kept saying no. And he kept going, come on, Kim, like, feel like you're supposed to go like come on and like I think I didn't agree to go till like a week after the deadline was supposed to I think it was like a week later because you know I I am just a wee bit stubborn especially when I don't think I can do something and which is probably at that point a lot of things because oh of the messages. so many things I would refuse to do and that was a typical pattern for me at that time to not do anything that was remotely out of my comfort zone because of the sense of failure. Oh, yeah. That you weren't enough. So to... many of those things just constantly pounding through my head on a regular basis. And I always say it's a God thing. Like, he just broke through that wall, and I found myself saying yes, probably because I wanted to please Robert so badly. Hmm. He'd done, you know, at that point, he'd allowed me to hang around and get involved and be immature and leave 30 minutes in the group and disappear for an hour. <laughs> and you know, never said anything about it. And so just, we wound up going on a missions trip. And, like, at that point, like, I would cry at the drop of the hat, mind you, not in front of people, because that was also embarrassing mm-hmm. for me. Uh, I got mocked a lot for crying, because I was, used to be 
extremely easily led to tears, mm. which apparently bothered my father and my sister. Mm. So um, I kind of got mocked out of that one. But I was just I was just so in a searching place, and there's something about building houses for people and being in a country where we went to Mexico and we built houses. And being in a place where they have nothing and they're tr- and you're serving them and they're giving you everything that they have. And it just wrecked me. And I'm like, okay, God, if you want me to go YWAM, I keep feeling like maybe that's what you want. If you somehow bring it up with my parents, I'll go. So you witnessed people in what you would consider to be extreme poverty generously giving themselves away. Yeah. Despite their circumstances. Oh, yeah. And that's that's what wrecked you. Oh, so bad. You know, I mean, we're sitting here, and we weren't even building nice houses. Well, comparatively nice houses. It was plywood, you know, dirt floor, one room. They weren't the best houses. I mean, there were definitely different missions organizations that were building much nicer houses for them. But they were just so grateful. And, like, they're like, here, there's more food. Like, and they would cook these amazing meals for us. For like this whole team of us, and you know that they could probably barely afford it if they could really actually afford it. What did that speak to you in opposition to the messages that you had been hearing all your life? You know, honestly, I probably wasn't aware of it at the time. To right. be, I was so self unself aware at that moment. Well, yeah. here's here's the thing about it. Nine, you're in the you're in the the uh, gut triad, which there's nine numbers and there's three sets of three yeah. and and each one has a, a different like there's the gut triad the eight nine and the one the feelings triad which is the two three and the four and five six and seven my number seven in the thought triad so yeah you you weren't processing mm-hmm. it but at a gut level there was a message that you were receiving loud and clear from that obviously looking back so looking back on that what do you think that message was (laughs) that was in opposition to the lies yeah i think a lot of it was just you were worth loving because you know i mean yeah we were building them the houses but what they were doing cost them a lot more than it cost us Mm. you know and even though what it looked smaller they weren't well off and they were feeding 20 something of us and feeding us well and taking care of us, you know, and that was, that was it. I literally, I went back home and that very week, like like five days later, my parents sat me down and said, we feel like you don't know where you're going with your life. And we know you've, I know, we know that couple from church has been talking to you about YWAM. So we feel like you should probably either do, go to YWAM and do a discipleship school or you should go to Hume Lake and do their Joshua Tree program. That was the first clear sign I ever remembered getting from God. Look, I've got my hand on your life. I'm leading you where you're supposed to go. And I was still doing it in kind of a, well, I guess God will slam the door in my face if I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Which is I, honestly is not a particularly fun way to go. <laughs> Taking for, for someone who has a fear of failure. Yeah. And it was amazing. They paid for my lecture phase. I did one fundraiser with my church. They covered all of my outreach phase. And week number two was an entire week on hearing the voice of God. Mm. And that wrecked me. And that changed my life because for the first time, I knew that I knew that I knew that I heard his voice. And the first thing I heard him say was, I love you. Mm. And that just, that just changed everything. I mean, not all at once, but that was the start. That was why I could then, when I came back, 
I did two more schools with YOM. I did a summer leadership program, which freaked the heck out of me because my uh, thinking that I was supposed to be in the background, I still said that God closed my ears to the word leadership program because I had no desire to be a leader. And then I went back and did a ministry school, and I just remembered how much I loved being with this, the teenagers, so I did my internship in youth ministry. And mainly got completely wrecked because I had the youth pastor tell me I had no business considering being in youth ministry. That wasn't... That was not... No, sorry, that was not Robert. That was the youth pastor I interned under um, in a little small town up in the hills. Okay. Um, who will remain nameless because... Yeah. <laughs> you know, no one's perfect. And he was clearly wrong. <laughs> yes. This, I, I during will, the YWAM years? So, uh, yeah, that was that was the last school I did with YWAM. That was my ministry school. And about... So uh, there was a year where the, everything went wrong with the church, and Robert wound up moving away, and they fired the pastor, and everything went to heck, and my mother wasn't speaking to me. I got kicked out of the house and was staying with someone from the church, and then wasn't able to live with them. And I briefly moved up into the mountains for nine months, which did not go well for me. <laughs> Uh, nines don't process things well, and uh, to say that the trailer I was living in looked a little bit messy would be an understatement. Mm. Uh, and when I, w- when I came back immediately, I was like, I'm going to go back and work with the youth ministry. Like, I know I'm not supposed to be, I know, quotations, I'm not supposed to be a youth minister, but I still love working with the kids. So even though that that voice added to the sense of you're not a leader, you're a failure... I couldn't I couldn't stay away from the kids because it was where I found life. Like it was where I heard God best. It was where I saw him working and moving and I couldn't I couldn't stay away. And then the the um at that point their church was still without a pastor, so they were only hiring part time interims and the guy that was there left. He he wound up having to move and they knew I'd done a ministry school and keep in mind I'd been going to that church since I was ten. Hmm. So, um to say that there was a little bit of the, oh, this is our baby, and we love her, and um, even though she hasn't gone to college or done any of the other stuff, like, we want her. Hmm. That's what the that was, that was like the, That was the church community was just like, unless I really screwed up, I could pretty much do no wrong hmm. <laughs> in their eyes because they'd watched me grow up. And so I was 23 when they're like, hey, we want you to be the youth pastor. It's part-time, it's interim, we can't officially hire you until we get a regular pastor back in, but we want you to do it. And I said no. Mm. Shocker. For anyone who knows me, um, I said no, and then they asked me a month later, and I said no. And then they asked me two months later, and I said no. And then finally, I was walking down the street, and I was praying, and I was just like hanging with God, and I heard God go, did I say you weren't supposed to be a youth pastor? Did I say you weren't supposed to do this? Because I don't remember me saying that. Mm. I was like, oh, he's like, this is what I want you to do. How many times do I have to ask you? This is going to be the last one. Oh, it scared the crud out of me. I literally, my hands were shaking for the first six months every time I had to get in front of the kids. Mm-hmm. But it was so worth it. And I loved it. I got to do it for a solid five years at that church. And, you know, stuff happened, and I wound up having to leave. But then I still got to do youth ministry. I got to youth ministry with a, a church plant in between then. And I got to see all those kids that I had in junior high. I got to see them graduate high school. Hmm. I got to be there for them for all of those years. I got to keep a promise, because I'd promised them if I could, I would. 
It sounds like, to me, the voices of hurts that were creating obstacles from you experiencing God's love, the reality of God's love for you, were relentless. But I, I also hear God's relentless love pursuing you to break through those obstacles, those walls. And Robert pursuing you, not taking no for an answer. Mm-hmm. The church community who wanted you, knew you, saw you, valued you. A whole church community that saw you, knew you, and valued you and said, you're the one, and kept pursuing you even though you said no to the relentless pursuit of God through those people is the thread I see. I think we all have these voices that are speaking out of our hurts, speaking lies that are creating barriers from us hearing clearly the voice of God and experiencing his love, but he is also relentlessly pursuing us to break down those walls, heal those hurts. Mm -hmm. So you said you heard his voice clearly saying, did I say that you weren't a leader? How did you hear the voice? Because I think there are plenty of people, even Christ followers, who hear these kinds of stories, right? Yeah. But don't hear the voice of God that clearly. Obviously, it took years to get there. Yeah. Sounds like. Anyway, oh, I, I yeah. Get, but there's still many people that don't hear, couldn't tell you that they are hearing God's voice clearly above the voices of doubt, you know, and pain in their lives. So how did you recognize it and know it was God? How did that develop? Yeah, it's the funniest thing. Oh, man. That, I, I told you that second week in YOM, that an entire week spent on exactly what you just asked me about wrecked the crud out of me. <laughs> I mean, so much tears, so much tissue paper gone through in the course of that. For me, the main way he tends to speak is the, small, the still small voice uh, because words are so valuable to me. The one thing I've learned is that God speaks differently in different seasons and to different people. Sometimes it's a story, sometimes it's a song, sometimes it's going out in his creation and you just see the beauty of what he's done. And you see something little like a flower. And you go, he's like, look, look what I did here. No one else is noticing this. No one else is seeing this. But look how much care I took with this. And then always you've got to measure it against scripture. Is it matching up with what the Bible says? And, you know, the Bible says we are a royal priesthood. We're a chosen nation. You know, we are dearly and wholly loved. We're not given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Yeah. We're treasured. So, yeah, we're his treasured possession. Mm -hmm. You know, he takes delight in us. All of these things. So when I heard that still small voice going, did I say? Was that a thought in your mind? Yeah, yeah. When I say still small voice, it's, it's a thought, and it sounds somewhat like me, but it doesn't sound like me, which is somewhat confusing. So it's basically something, a thought that would pop in your head that you, you definitely wouldn't be... Would not be thinking, because I had totally written that off. I, and it broke my heart to write it off, because that was the second time I'd had to have a, what felt like a dream that got crushed. Hmm. And so I was pretty sensitive to, to that second crushing. <laughs> but... You know, I've, I've come to learn God speaks to everyone differently. Do we accept that, that could be God or do we write it off? Because God's always speaking, but it's too easy for us to go, oh, that wasn't really God. Let me just ignore that. Like the feeling of, oh, hey, I'm supposed to go bring something to so-and-so. 
And then they burst into tears because they were asking God, do I matter? Mm. Or feeling like God, just a feeling of it's safe to share this with someone who you've just met. I don't talk about my adoption stuff with a lot of people because it's a hard concept. It's something that normally takes a lot of trust for me to do, to be that vulnerable because it's an area of my greatest hurt. And I had a conversation on Saturday, on Sunday, with a girl who's literally, I'm friends with her parents, and she asked, and I just felt peace about it. Mm. And I just started sharing and being open and sharing where God's shown healing, where he'd shown, hey, yeah, bad things happen. Yeah, I give everyone free will, but that doesn't mean that I won't use it for good and I won't heal you in the middle of that pain and then use that to bring healing to others. So I was sharing that story with her, and and you had asked me about praying about coming on the podcast, and my instant response was, no, I don't want to. Sounds familiar. I know, my my instant no to the... To the insecure, but then we were talking and we were connecting. And she's like, "Man, that was how it got brought up." Is I was I was mentioning that um, to her parents, and she's like, "I want to hear your story," and she kept just going like, "Like go on the podcast. I want to hear your story." Mm. You know, because God speaks through other people. He speaks through His still small voice. He speaks through Scripture. And sometimes some of the best things you can do is just sit still, and be quiet, and simply ask God, "What do you think about me?" Mm. And then to start write down everything that comes into your mind. Yeah. And then that's anything risky. that's... That is risky. It, it, it takes being vulnerable with God. But I love what the Passion Translation says, where it says that God became vulnerable for us. Mm. And if He, the God of the universe, is willing to be vulnerable with us and for us, how can I hold back? Like, who could be safer to be vulnerable with and a God who would be vulnerable with me first. Yeah. That's the holiness, right? He is consistently sacrificial, vulnerable. We see that with Jesus. People often ask, what is God like? And if you're asking, what is God like? Go look at the life of Jesus. Here's a man who went into Jerusalem where the religious opposition against him was the highest he had ever confronted and he's walking through the temple courts saying I am the bread of life whoever comes to me whoever would come to me and he is laying himself out there in the midst of a city that is opposing him and he's making himself available to the people who want to kill him talk about vulnerability That's you want to see the heart of God do a study on the life of Jesus because oh, it yeah. is said that this is this is God in the flesh. This is God represented to man. Take a good look at Jesus. He was accused of of being with the people that the rest of society marginalized, that said were the worst sinners. Think about the people in our time. Who's the church condemning the most? Who are the the people who feel on the margins? Who feel like they can never be enough for God? Those are the people that Jesus hung out with. That's the voice of God. Yeah. So, final question then. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to people who are unsure if they're hearing God's voice? What would you say to them to help them take some steps in listening for God's voice? Listening for God's voice. It takes time. 
that's the biggest thing. If you don't make time for him to speak to you, we're so busy. Our brains are constantly busy, and if we can't take the time to be still, it's incredibly hard to hear him when our minds are buzzing with a billion other things. It's not that you can't break through that, but especially if, if we're not in the habit of listening to him, it's very hard to, for, for that to happen. Mm. So that's the biggest one. And then challenge yourself. Take the time and just sit down with a piece of paper and a pen. Maybe have some quiet time first. Do some worship so your heart's in the right place. And go, God, what do you think about me? And whatever doesn't line up with scripture, cross it out. Hmm. But then you have to know his word in order to know his voice. You know, I think we've got now the habit, it's not popular now, to memorize scripture. Hmm. Um, And for all the annoying habits that my parents had, that is one I'm actually grateful for was that they firmly believed in us learning scripture and knowing what the Bible said about everything. Because how do you recognize his voice if you're not reading his word? Yeah. And then something that I'm learning more and more is God created us all uniquely. So the way he interacts with us is unique. So I hear it most often as still small voice and the, the thoughts in my head. That's my go-to at the very minimum, I'll get a I love you, hold on, out of, you know, if I just go and I'm quiet for a little bit. But for some people, it's music, it's poetry, it's nature, it's a feeling. There's so many ways that God expresses himself, and don't expect it to look like anyone else's. Mm, don't Give yourself yourself. the grace not compare yourself to anyone else nice because yeah. that's the thing and it's just practice it's it's like any other thing the more you practice it the easier it becomes to recognize it the next time it happens because when i first i was like yeah that that, that week changed me at ywam i still wrestled so much my journals as sporadic as they are from then are full of me wrestling with god and that's the trick the trick is Okay, you don't understand what he's saying in this? You don't like it? Well, go to him with it. He, nothing you can say is going to freak him out. Mm-hmm. Like, he wants us to wrestle with him because wrestling is intimate. Mm-hmm. Wrestling is up close and personal. Like, you can't go wrong wrestling with God because it means you're engaging him. I always say that it's awkward to wrestle with other people's kids. <laughs> that points to the intimacy of it, right? You wrestle with your own kids, but, man, it's weird to wrestle with other people's kids kids unless you're very close to that family you know yeah and that is what you're saying the intimacy of wrestling when we wrestle with things and we question things and we don't have answers and we're, we go to god and we're, what are you doing that's a very intimate process we see that in scripture with jacob in the old testament at this moment yeah. where this man jacob wrestles with the angel of the lord and many will say that the angel of the lord was actually God himself, the representation of God himself. And so, yeah, wrestling with issues is an intimate process that God is inviting us to come to him with. Yeah, because you got two options. You're going to run towards him or you're going to run away from him. Yeah. The funny thing, when you run towards him, you don't even get a whole step before you realize he was already there. And that's, you know, uh, for me, an understanding... I'm understanding the idea, the concept of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom from what you just said, that idea of we're always afraid. 
anytime we're in a situation that's unknown, feels uncertain, fear erupts. And God is unknown to us in many ways. And so fear is going to come up. So we have two choices. We can, as you said, in, in our fear we can run away and hide, which we see Adam and Eve doing once they turned away from God. Yeah. Fear became a natural part of their existence, and they ran and hid from God. Or we can run towards God in our fear, and that is the fear of the Lord. It is in the fear, turning to God and giving Him the chance to answer us in our wrestlings, to speak to us in our pain, to begin to open up and, and take risks, despite the hurt and the pain and the obstacles and the voices we're hearing that are creating those obstacles of shame and hurt, giving God the chance to go, well, what are you going to do about this? What are you saying? Where are you in this? And that's one of my favorite things is like, God, where were you in the last 24 hours? Where are you in my anxiety right now? Where are you in this pain? Where are you in these decisions I have to make? I think asking questions and then spending time in silence is something we don't do enough of in our relationship with God. Oh, yeah. Would you say that one of the things that you discovered is when God wants to speak to us, he says it multiple times so that we know it's him versus the noise of the world and our own hurt? Yeah, I did find on a frequent basis, not all of them, but I even think about some of the stuff that I've been wrestling with and talking through with you lately. I then looked back at my journal notes um, from quiet times with God and found the same themes Hmm. over and over again. You know, themes of value, themes of you're not a burden, themes of you have a hope, you have a future. You know, he's pretty good at repeating that stuff. I think it's Pollyanna who gets the credit for saying that there are literally 365 times of being thankful in the Bible, one for every day of the year. Mm. of being glad or rejoicing, you know, what you need. God's like, I got this. Mm. Like, he's more than willing to pound it through our thick skulls, (laughs) gently, but still persistently, sometimes not gently. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes because sometimes he has to wake us up, and he has to shake us a little. Shaking is not easy. We don't like to be shaken. Or pressed. Or pressed. But even in your story, the multiple times that Robert came to you, like to highlight going on that trip. Yeah. Or the multiple times that the congregation, the church community said, you're it, and the multiple times you said no to that. Yeah. Again, God was speaking over and over again to make you see that it was him and and, uh, not anything else. Yeah, that's definitely... a theme with God. I think because he knows we need it. Yes. Because all the other voices are loud. And, and so, they are always on repeat. Yeah. <laughs> and so God is relentless. That's yeah. the, the one thing I hear in this, in the middle of all of these, of all of your pain, all of the brokenness you've gone through, God has been relentless in this pursuit of you until you relented. But the beauty of it is that he doesn't force his way in. He relentlessly pursues, but there comes a point where we have to, to choose. Yeah, we have to let him in. We have to take the risk. And when we do, we begin to see just a little bit by little bit from what I hear in your stories how safe we are with him. When we're not safe with anyone else, and there's yeah. his holiness there, 
He is wholly safe. Yes. Although I prefer the word good, only because he often asks us to go into the uncomfortable spots. That's why I love the C.S. Lewis quote, Lucius Lewis, when he talks about, when they're talking about Aslan, and it's either Susan or Lucy, asks Mr. Beaver. It's Lucy. Lucy, who asks, but is he, he's a lion, is he safe? She's like, no, he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Yeah. And, and it's that concept, yeah, God is not going to keep us wrapped in cotton and you know, sitting on a shelf where we're not going to do any good, but we'd be safe. Yeah. But he is holding us in the middle of it and walking with us through it and working with us and in us. Yes. And that makes that part safe. Yes. Doesn't he, feel safe. He, yes, it doesn't feel safe, but he is safe. Yeah. As he calls us to challenge us <laughs> into growth by stepping out into what seems to be unsafe situations and people, circumstances. Yet He is safe for us in the midst of that. And when we don't understand anything, we're safe to come to Him and yell, question, (laughs) wrestle. That's where our safety is. Yeah, for sure. That's the journey that I hear that you're on, that we're all on, is to believe in His goodness, His holy goodness that he is not inconsistent so when you often say this here's the consistency of God his love and his goodness are consistent for us so when things are not good we know he's not done yet yeah although I will give Chris Valentin the credit for that (laughs) quote yeah but it's the one that stuck with me the most in the last few years so say that say The the quote is if it's not good God's not done yet because God says that he works everything together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. Yeah. So in the middle of it, yeah, it often doesn't seem good and it seems hard and we're getting crushed and pressed on every side. But that just means God's not done. Yeah. And he is still working. And we get to hold on to that hope because God's not the light at the end of the tunnel. He's the light in the middle mm. of the darkness. The God who was and is and is, is to, to come. come. The light in every place. And that just made me think of this idea of we can't change the past, but we can see it from God's perspective, and that changes everything. Yeah. Seeing our pain, seeing our hurt, seeing the moments of absolutely, when when our innocence was shattered, which we've all had, and we wish we could change it, and we try to ignore it, but God and His beauty shows us can can show us if we'll let him where he was for us in the midst of that. He's done that for me. He's done that for you. Oh yeah. We can't change the past, but we can see it from God's perspective and that changes yeah. everything. I love it. Bill Johnson says it's actually not safe to look at the past unless we look at it through Jesus' eyes. Hmm. And let him show us where it is hmm. because otherwise all we're seeing is what the enemy wants us to see in the middle of it. Hmm. God is working everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It means that there's a lot of things that aren't good, but God is reconciling everything, bringing it together for good. So he's taking all the broken pieces. And I love the word reconciling because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of inconsistencies in me, but God in his holy consistency is taking all those broken pieces and those fragments and bringing them together and reconciling things. Yeah. Filling in the gaps. 
And so even when things aren't good right now, God is still working to bring goodness out of them in me and through me and you. So say the quote one more time that that you love. The quote if I love. This is a good If it is not good, God is not done yet. Wait, one more time. If it's not good, God's not done yet. I think we just have to end it there. Yeah. Kim, thank you for being on the show with me. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, this is a great pleasure. A great pleasure. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Hey, if you want to get in contact with us, we have an email address, lifehurtsgodheals2020 at gmail.com. If you have questions, you have concerns, you need advice, you want to support what we're doing, please email us. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, may you turn your face to God and let Him pour out His blessings on you. Take care.